welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Good morning, everyone, to another Trailblazer Diff podcast. And today we are joined by Ian Andrew, Director of Intermediary Relations at Nationwide and TMW. Ian grew up in a local authority housing estate on the outskirts of Glasgow. He left school before his 16th birthday, had a couple of jobs, including working for the council before joining Royal Insurance, moving to Northern Rock, where he had a number of different positions. And after 17 years, he joined Nationwide as head of intermediary sales. Now, he launched Nationwide for Intermediaries, then went on to merge Nationwide and TMW Salesforce. And he now is director of intermediary relations with a huge amount of responsibility, which stretches from operational e-support, change teams, telephone BDMs, a BDM sales team, the dual branded presentation of Nationwide and TMW in the marketplace. And he is a proud Scot. Joining him is Mobin Akram and Mobin would you like to introduce yourself? Good morning and thank you for allowing me to join today. So my name is Mobeen. I'm New Homes Director at Mortgage Advice Bureau and I'm 42 years old. You don't look it, Mobeen. <laughs> you could have lied then quite easily. <laughs> I head up the New Homes Division at MAB. I'm overall responsible for developing and maintaining our key stakeholders and relations in New Build Division. I'm responsible for our New Homes proposition coming to market and our overall market share for MAB in terms of our new build AR firms and our relationships with top house builders across the UK. In addition to that, I represent MAB in the wider community with HBF, Homes England, Homes of Scotland, etc. And since joining, I've really been working hard with our chief exec, Peter Brodnicki, with bringing our new homes proposition out in the marketplace and really having a compelling proposition that we can talk to house builders about. In addition to that, I've been working closely with our innovation director about digital coaching and creating ready-made buyers for for house builders and really working quite closely with them. Prior to MAB, I was New Homes Director at First Mortgage Direct in Edinburgh, and I was leading, um, again, their New Homes division. I was there for 14 years, so for quite a while, I started as a mortgage advisor and worked my way up in terms of new build and, and increased our market share there as well. Before that, I actually studied law, so completely different. I went to a university in London, I graduated in law, and funnily enough, my parents were like, okay, well, you're getting really old now, so you need to get married. So I ended up marrying my boyfriend at the time and ended up in Edinburgh. And I was there for 18 years. And part of that was my long stint at First Mortgage. So not a huge variation of jobs. Well, apart from the start, but let's go back a little further, because one of the things that we have discussed together is your ethnic background, which is rich and special. Do you want to 
to tell us about your mum and dad and where your influences come from. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when I spoke to you initially, what I feel really passionately about is really bringing your true self, whether it's work, whether it's social. And that's really important to me because I've got a mixed heritage. So I've got Middle East and Asian background. I grew up with a very different culture of having parents who, I guess, you know, having Persian and, and Pakistani background. We have different cultures, different languages. And then growing up, I guess, in a very leafy village of Rygate, where when I went to school from the beginning, I was literally the only brown person there. I, I think maybe there was a boy likely who joined later on in school, but ultimately I was the only person with, with an ethnic background and it was predominantly white and yeah, I mean, I guess it was difficult and it was different to you because as a child, you want to blend in, don't you? You want to be the same as everybody else. You want a name that's not as unique as mine, Mobine. And I used to always argue with my parents, why could I not have a name like Sarah or, or something like that, which was a lot more easier to pronounce. And my name was an issue. And then growing up with different cultures, you have a sense of lack of belonging and identity because you're like, OK, well, I'm not white. I'm not fully brown because I'm quite fair. I've a mixed heritage. Where do I actually belong? And that was a little bit of a struggle when I was younger, for sure, because you need that sense of community, don't you? We all need to have a diverse community, but also we need to reflect on that and think, okay, how does that actually operate in practice? So I definitely struggled as I was younger about where I belong. And obviously on top of that, I had my religious faith and my dad wasn't very religious at all. He wasn't practicing, whereas my mum was. So there's a bit of a conflict of not only who you are, but what you believe in and where you are in, in society. That is fascinating. And we will return to that, I'm sure, because I do want to bring in from the perspective of what are the aspects of a, a homogeneous society and environment to Ian, because I know, Ian, in the council estate that you grew up in, certainly for a big chunk of your earlier life, it was all white working class families, wasn't it? Yes, it was, Barrett. And I have to say there was a, I didn't feel underprivileged in any way, but it was certainly very working class. And just reflecting on it, I think that everybody worked, you know, all the adults seemed to work. Nobody really seemed to have enough money to go on holiday, but everybody had a job. And even as children, you were encouraged to go out and work fairly early. So I had a paper round from when I was 12 or 13. And my friends had was delivering milk and delivering Coca-Cola and Iron Brew. And a couple of my friends worked in a van that delivered paraffin and colour gas round the doors because that was the heating in some of the, the houses at the time. It's beginning to sound a little bit like a period drama here. So it was a very working class environment, but I think you were encouraged to work early. And and the fact was, if you wanted to go into town and buy records or go for a burger or something, you had to work to put a bit of extra money in your pocket. So there was a real good work ethic in the community. You told me the story about the first person of colour that came into that community and if you could just expand on what happened there. So the first person of colour that I can remember coming across was a lad called Mark Willoughby, who was a, an Indian lad. I must have been maybe nine or ten at primary or junior school at the time. And I think he arrived at school at that time. I can't remember whether he transferred from a different school or a different part of the country or whatever. But I became quite friendly with him. And he invited me around to his house for a game of Subutal after school had finished. And, of course, everybody was footballed after at that time. You played football for... 50 weeks of the year and the only time you didn't play football was the two weeks when Wimbledon was on when everybody played tennis. And I went around to his house to play some beautiful football and he had a round pitch set up and I said, well, what was this? And it was a beautiful cricket pitch. I honestly didn't even know what cricket was at the time. I'd, I'd never heard of the game. I certainly hadn't played the game. I'd never seen the game. 
And I was just sitting looking at this round pitch, expecting to be playing some beautiful football. But that was the first non-white person I could remember coming across. And even going into, into secondary school, where I was 11, 12 or whatever. Thinking back on it, I can only remember a couple of non-white people in, in the school and people of colour in the school. And they did get a tremendous amount of mental abuse. They were regularly shouted at and abused with things like phrases that you just wouldn't say now. And it must have been a very tough upbringing for them. It must have been horrendous in places. And I genuinely can't remember them playing sports. So, of course, at school, you would throw yourself into the football team or the rugby team or an athletic team or whatever you were, you were particularly good at because that was a good way to make friends and, I guess, be socially acceptable and build up your interpersonal skills, etc. And And I think they probably felt excluded to the point where they couldn't join the various sporting teams that were in the school at the time. So it's fairly horrific thinking back on it, to be honest. I always remember with a, a black friend of mine, we both went to Northwestern Comprehensives and he got on really well because he was good at sport and I was bullied and ostracised because I was really crap at sport. So I think the sport thing is very important there. What was it like for you, Mobin, at school, being the only person of colour there from a bullying perspective? Looking back at it, I'd actually like, being very honest, I had a very positive upbringing. I think for me, in regards to my school and I had many friends and I just would like to reflect it positively where my race really wasn't like an issue. I think it was probably me internally because I was well integrated, I guess. I did what everybody else did. I went to all the trips and I wore what everybody else did because my parents allowed me to as well. And where I've seen that difference with maybe cousins or, or other friends or in the community, they probably from their perspective, weren't allowed to integrate as much, whereas my parents were very much allowed me to be the same as everybody else, which I think is really important. When I reflect on it as I was growing up, although my race, I look different to everybody else in the school, I was allowed to be who I was by my family and integrate, which I think is very, very important because when you are integrated, you have that sense of community and a sense of belonging. So although I did struggle with growing up, having a different family at home compared to my friends, there were certain things when it came to alcohol, or as I was growing up, it was frowned upon in my family, whereas you could go out to parties and there's very much open drinking, you know, coming from a Muslim family. So there were differences, which I did struggle with. But overall, when I reflect back, I think, you know, I'd like to be positive about my upbringing and think, actually, do you know what? I think when I was in school, I had friends and I integration was a huge part of it. I think being allowed to do that by your family, but also with your friends as well, it was different. What point then did you find that you couldn't just be Mobeen? When did you start to discover that there were going to be either obstacles or issues in your day-to-day -day life because of your colour? Was it at university or was it at work? I would honestly say I probably felt it more at work coming into the working environment, interestingly enough, although I have to say I've been quite fortunate that I feel whenever I've gone into every job, I've had a long center, pretty much all of them, where I've grown into my role. But I feel sometimes, I think my name has always like been an issue, like pronouncing it. And, you know, you kind of accept it, don't you, as you get older. So I felt at that time, especially in the working environment, when I left university, I studied law and did a short stint at Shoes and Solicitors and then moved to Edinburgh and worked for First Mortgage. I think where there's communities where there's lack of Asian people or that lack of integration, you do come across more different. I wouldn't say alien, but I guess people aren't aware. I remember starting in, in a certain job where it was like, are we allowed to say that? Can we wish you Merry Christmas? Or And I'm like, yeah, of course, I celebrate Christmas. It was almost like a fear. And that made me feel like, well, why am I not the same as you? 
So I felt it more coming into the workplace where there's people of different generations in particular. And Ian, so I know we've spoken that Nationwide were very, very early adopters of things like unconscious bias training and stuff. But as you grew into management and started leading more diverse teams, did you feel that you had to go on a learning process and actually find out about things like other people's big religious celebrations and dates and all that sort of stuff? I mean, it's not something that I was particularly aware of, but I think my view has just been, let, let's try and get the best person for the job. But sometimes when you look around, you look at the, the, the lack of diversity that there is in the team. And I think Nationwide has been incredibly proactive and incredibly aware of its responsibilities in that regard. Probably relatively quick to the party. I think the first time I went on an educational session on, on unconscious bias was probably six or seven years ago now, which I guess in mortgage industry terms was probably relatively early. And some of that stuff was, was really, really interesting. And, you know, we started discussing things around blank CVs and, and, you know, trying to get a better balance within the teams. And, and ever since then, Nationwide has been on a real, real mission regarding that. So, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of education going on, a tremendous amount of awareness going on. We've all got now community champions when it comes to DNI and We've got a couple in the intermediary relationship community. One of them is, is, one, is one of our BDMs. So I think we're very aware of our responsibilities. And of course, there's more that has to be done. But I think we're, we're certainly well down the path with regard to some of the, the things that we had to change and some of the diversification that, that had to take place. So it's been a real positive journey. And it's, you know, it's been great to see it taking place across the society. I think we're all agreed we're in a better place than we were. But uh, Moby, I'd just like your views before we go on and discuss about how we can attract more diverse talent to the mortgage market. Muslim women and Pakistani women in particular are the most underrepresented group of people in leadership roles in UK business. Do you think there's any particular reason for that? Because, again, you're about the only person in the mortgage industry that has your descriptor that is a female from a Muslim background that I know of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to the point of we definitely need to widen that talent pool, don't we? When I think about my cousins or my friends, predominantly, they've got either a legal background, they've gone into law, like myself, I started off studying law, or they're medics, or they're a teacher. I think culturally, it's not seen as a, a career path for sure. I mean, even to this day, my parents see me as a mortgage advisor, and almost like it's frowned upon that I ended up in mortgages. There's not done, I think, enough within the industry to really attract the right talent. And for sure, it's a career path. It's a great industry to work in. And I think looking around the community, we definitely are underrepresented. And I, I think partly is because it's not seen as a great career within the culture. And I think we need to do more within our communities locally to attract talent. I mean, my niece, for example, she did a master in psychology. And she, in the end, during the pandemic, she couldn't find jobs. And I spoke to her about how about mortgage advice? What do you think of doing that and how it can lead to a career, a very successful career? And she did her CMAP exams and, you know, she's, she's a mortgage advisor and she absolutely loves it because she's got the right skill set for it in terms of sales and having that personality with customers and being able to attract. So I think we need to widen the talent pool is my point. And we need to do more in the industry to attract people from different backgrounds, because if we do that, it's great for not only for our community locally, but also for our business overall, because we're attracting different customers, which is more profitable for us. But we need to invest internally first to attract the right talent. I couldn't agree with you more. I've often found it quite fascinating that the subcontinental community can quite often be happier 
with somebody working as a conveyancer earning 40 grand a year in a conveyancing factory rather than a mortgage broker earning 150 grand a year helping people fulfill their dreams. It's like a title, you're going to work, you're doing a nine to five job. And then that's a cultural background though, isn't it? It's a stigma attached to that because of our culture. But I do think, although it has got better, it still lies there. You know, medics and lawyers are still seeing the better career path because ultimately, I think traditionally, after my parents' generation, they felt if you became a doctor or a lawyer, you're not relying on anything else in society to keep you back. Ultimately, you'll be in a great career because of your education and and your background rather than a cultural acceptance as well. I think that has got partly something to do with it. I do feel, I think, I don't know if you agree with me, Ian, but the intermediary mortgage market in particular is as close as you can get to a meritocracy. If you do your job well, you will be rewarded and promoted accordingly. It's not really a sort of jobs for the boys sort of environment, is it? No, it's not, but I would completely agree with that. I completely agree with what Mobian was, was saying there as well. I think there's a couple of things for me. You know, we talked about education and awareness, and part of that really is, is holding the mirror up. And I thought a great example of that was the report produced by Amy last year, which was really interesting if uncomfortable reading with some of the examples that were quoted in that. Now, we used that report internally within Nationwide with Robert's permission, and we sent it around so that people could have a look at some of the behaviours and some of the challenges within the market. And hopefully that did force people to have a look in the mirror and think, you know, are me or any of my staff behaving in that way? Because it was a real challenge reading through some of that report. And the other point, I think, is role models. And we're starting to see some tremendous female role models coming through the industry now with some, you know, some of our biggest distributors now having female leadership. Nationwide has just appointed Debbie Crosby as its new chief executive. She starts later this quarter. So we're starting to see some real role models coming through in terms of females. And we could probably do with a little bit more of that in the authenticity side as well. Oh, Ian, couldn't agree with you more. It's such an important factor to have that role model, someone to aspire to. Even when I look at Esther or LBG, I mean, that's such a great inspiration to all of us as women, as you see more females in the industry at senior levels. I mean, even small time me haven't been a role model for my niece to say actually you can make it in this industry with women who's muslim who's from an ethnic background you're a female if you work hard you're devoted you can get somewhere and that has actually a huge impact more than we think it does because it's inspirational and it motivates us to be the best of who we are and bring our true self to our workplace i don't think you should say you're small time you be I've seen you described on LinkedIn by somebody very senior as the queen of new build. And I don't think Ian would disagree with you. He might say princess, queen's a bit old. And indeed, I have to say, Nature One are doing some really good things. And Ian was, was kind enough to ask me to speak to his team on a regular Zoom meeting that they had once. And it was eye-opening, just the level of interest and the level of people wanting to learn. And I think going back to an earlier point you made, Moby, it's down to the responsibility of everybody, both people from underrepresented groups and those that form the majority, to be open about, is it okay to say this? But is it okay for me to wish you happy Christmas? Because if you don't ask, you don't know whether it is or not. So to a certain extent, I don't know about you, do you say happy Eid or Eid Mubarak to your white English friends? No. <laughs> but I think it depends on the culture or... or, or um religion or you know I have Hindu friends and I wish happy Diwali to them I have Jewish friends I have people from so many different backgrounds and I'm really proud of that and I like the fact that we can all celebrate our own religion or faith and I mean you know me I'm definitely not the most religious person so I probably wouldn't wish 
somebody in my workplace happy Eid, but if they were Muslim, of course, but it's about celebrating each other's cultures and religion and respecting that. And that's really important to me. And that, you know, I've been lucky enough to be brought up to respect and not have that bias towards anybody, regardless of their religion, which is a big factor, especially in a a Pakistani culture, regardless of, of someone's religion or the country, their native country, you should respect people for who they are. And that's really important for inclusivity in particular. But we celebrate Christmas. Ultimately, I was brought up in the UK. I've got two kids and we we celebrate Christmas at that time. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because, again, my children then feel a sense of belonging. If their friends are celebrating Christmas, why shouldn't they? But it's not a religious aspect. It's more of a culture thing and it's nice for them to enjoy and have a tree and, and have Christmas Day lunch. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Indeed. So let's move on to what you bring to your work and stuff. In terms of the richness and diversity of your heritage, right? has that allowed you to be a sort of better advisor or to bring a better level of understanding to some customers? You were telling me a story about a, a Chinese couple that were sort of getting quite desperate before you, you took the case over. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think in particular, starting off as a mortgage advisor, being able to talk to a pool of clients, regardless of their background. I mean, I'm fortunate enough that I'm, you know, I'm very British in terms of my upbringing, but also I still have my heritage. So that means I can, I guess, attract different type of clients and I can resonate with all of them in that respect, because I'm aware of whether it's Chinese culture, whether it's Asian culture, Pakistani, I understand how people in terms of the self-employed, in terms of business or culturally how they work. And I think there's a really good example of it, even when listening to your previous podcast with Saj and how the committee option worked. I was listening to that and I was laughing at that to myself thinking that's so true because if you're part of the culture you understand there's nothing unethical about it but it's a culture thing and sometimes that can be misunderstood so that particular example when I mentioned to you with with, with the Chinese family that was just one of them but also as an advisor working with different clients from different backgrounds but also house builders so I remember working many years ago with a Persian house that's your house builder the the director of Persian heritage and the fact that there was a little bit of misunderstanding with their, their properties or premium properties, there were issues with valuations and really no broker was willing to work with them just because of the language barrier. So, I mean, just the fact that we struck a chord with our language, with our background, it can help, I guess, widen that pool of clients even, can't it? Because you can relate to them. You understand their culture about their product and you can relate to them in, in that respect, but maybe other people can't. And ultimately, it's more profitable for a company where you bring in clients, which normally you wouldn't do. So this particular house builder company, they they had issues with valuations, but we were able to speak to them. I was able to speak to Lord Banking Group, get involved with our national housing manager there at the time. He was a chap called Alan Greasy and we got him involved and really paid a lot of attention, which other brokers weren't doing. And ultimately, it worked profitable for us because we got that house builder on board and that in turn, more relationships and more referrals. And, and we were able to help grow our footprint in new build. So I think there's lots of examples where you can help strengthen your business and attract new clients, I guess. And Ian, do you sort of feel now that with all the stuff that's going on, with, with initiatives like DIFF, with the things that you're doing at Nationwide and other people are doing, and, and again, people like Debbie Crossley, and Michelle Galanska being at SBG and Esther and Alison Rosen at West. We're on the cusp of really a, a huge opportunity to broaden the makeup of our industry. I think we are, Barrett. I think they almost have to stop becoming initiatives and start becoming business as usual. And I genuinely think that's where we are inside Nationwide. I, I, I think there's a momentum building up now that won't stop. You know, everybody understands the importance of it. 
And I think that's starting to happen across the industry as well. And I think things like Div are, a, you know, they're a great way to kick it off, but everybody just needs to embed that now as business as usual. And if that is the case, then things will continue to improve. And I think that is a very good point to stop at. So yes, diversity and inclusivity is should be business as usual rather than anything else. And I think both Ian and I would agree on one thing, and that is that the industry needs more Mobin acronyms. So any new Mobeans out there, please contact Mobeen or Ian for a job. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mobeen. Thank you, Ian. And we will see you next time. Bye. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.